Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us wherever you might be today. Take your Bibles and turn to the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. You know, everyone loves to be honored, applauded, noticed, and yet there's always things in life where we have to humble ourselves to do what is unpleasant and unnoticed. In your work or career life and in your parenting, you hopefully have those moments where you're just kind of bursting with pride and joy, but you know that to get there, you endured a lot of messy moments in, in parenting or in your job. You had to just humble yourself and do them. As we look today at Luke chapter 2, we're going to be thinking about Mary and Joseph and how they humbled themselves to be part of this incredible process of the incarnation. Incarnation means in the flesh, Jesus, who was God, came in human flesh. But before we go there, I'd like us to look at, and I'm going to put the the, uh, verse on the screen here for you, Philippians 2, we're going to start and finish with this, because what we are all doing if if we're humbling ourselves is actually following the example of Christ himself. Paul wrote about Christ, but first of all about us. Have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus came from heaven to earth, from deity and all of its privileges to be one of us. This is about Jesus, but do you notice how the passage begins? He talks about Jesus because he's talking to us. Have this same mindset. So we want to be thinking this morning about our own sense of humility. As I, the, the more I, I see in Scripture and the more, I guess, I just observe life, I see the great value that God puts on humility. It's like the, the greatest core character issue in our lives. And the examples we see in Scripture are of people who either humbled themselves or God humbled them. That's how important this process is. So are we marked by an attitude of humbling ourselves? Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 is like the closest thing we have to a video of the story of what Mary and Joseph went through. It's rather simple, uh, kind of just the facts presentation of Jesus coming from eternal glory to becoming a baby 
to be a man, to die. Verses 1 to 3, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Notice this account does not begin with once upon a time. Uh, this is not fairy tale. This is not legend. This is rooted in history. And so this is the historical context. If you glance back to the first couple of verses of Luke, the, the, the book, you'll notice that Luke was writing this gospel humanly for an individual named Theophilus, middle of verse 3. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke had a friend named Theophilus, and the title <clears throat> given to him here suggests that he was a, an established Roman official. And Luke wanted his friend Theophilus to know all about Jesus. So he writes Luke. In fact, he addresses him again in the sequel to Luke, which is the book of Acts. Theophilus needed to know the historical context of Jesus. So while we might skim past these verses, realize how important they were as Luke was first writing, because Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke about six decades after the birth of Christ. So he and Theophilus are living later, looking back at this, and he wanted Theophilus to know exactly when this took place. Now, date-wise, we don't uh, know all of these details, how they converge. Augustus was emperor, a census was taken, Quirinius was governor, and frankly, it's, it, it's impossible for us to see exactly this convergence with other history. We just know from here these things all happened. We don't know when this specific census was taken. It brings up the question of when was Jesus born, and uh, date-wise, what we do know from history is that Herod the, the, the man who was king in Matthew 2 when Jesus was a baby, Herod died in 4 BC. So we know that Jesus was actually born a little before, probably the winter, uh, best chronology would be the winter of 5 going into 4 BC. Don't let that bother you about our calendar being BC before Christ because a man named uh, Dionysius Exegus is the man who first put together uh, the calendar that we are now using, uh, and that was in the 6th century, and uh, so he didn't have as much information as we do, but best account would be that Jesus was born about 4 to 5 B.C. What about the census? Census is political, and a census was always about taxation. Uh, Caesar Augustus was taking this one to tax people, and um, Luke would mention later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, about a different census, about 10 years later, that led to a revolt. And that's what happens sometimes. We so hate to be taxed that there can be a, a resistance to that. No one's ever liked taxes. And I would just assume that uh, this census was not so popular either. Jesus came into a time of political tension. I could only imagine that in the coffee shops from uh, Nazareth down to Jerusalem or Bethlehem, uh, people were kind of sneering at the census. Augustus says it's going to be more fair taxation, right? How many of you believe the taxes are going down and everybody, you know, ha ha? 
So money was one reason why this would not be a popular census. Another would just be the Jews' simple bitterness about the Romans taxing or having authority over them at all. If you think back about Israel's history, they always governed themselves. And in fact, it was only like 60 years before this, 60 years B.C., that the Roman government had taken over Israel. And so now they are in charge of Israel. And you can sense some of this resistance throughout the pages of the Gospels and the life of Christ. If uh, some of you who remember the Cold War, uh, if Russia had taken over America 60 years ago and we were paying taxes in rubles, you kind of get the flavor of how the Jewish people felt about Roman taxation. The fullness of time. The passage that, that Pastor Seth read earlier. The fullness of time, God's perfect timing was to bring his son into the world during a time of great political upheaval. His greatest work would take place during political tension. Don't ever think that political trouble disrupts the plan of God. And in fact, Jesus, when he came, did not even come to fix Rome. He came to fix us. He came to accomplish our redemption. The census was resented, I'm sure, because of money, because of politics, and the final reason would be the inconvenience of those who would need to travel to register like Joseph and Mary. So it was not only difficult politically, it was difficult for the family, Joseph and Mary, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So everyone must go. We aren't totally clear historically why it was required that they would need to leave uh, Nazareth to go to Judea, um, to their ancestral roots, but Luke makes it clear they must. It could have something to do with the way Jews regarded land ownership according to the ancient tribal allocations, and that would be where at least the heritage of Joseph would be, it says very clearly. Could it be he actually owned a family parcel back in Judea. But he clearly belonged to the house and line of David, and so Joseph would have to travel from Nazareth, which is north in Galilee, down to Judah, Judea, south, and they were both, Mary and Joseph, from the line of David and would have to register in Bethlehem, a hometown of sorts. But we know they had to go to Bethlehem not only because of the emperor's decree, they needed to go to Bethlehem to fulfill the plan of God communicated through Micah, the prophet. And it's amazing to see how God's plan and the political climate merge so perfectly. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel, one will come forth who will be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is written 700 years before Christ. And we see throughout this significant prophecy a number of details that are fulfilled and in fact descriptive of 
our Savior. It's a prophetic reference to the fact that Jesus would be the ruler or king of Israel, and of course, the universe, we know. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would come forth from Bethlehem, and so it speaks very clearly of a human king who is born, and yet where are his origins? His comings forth, as it's put there, is, is from long ago and from eternity. So he, here somehow is this individual who is both human and a, a baby and going to be a human king, but yet he is eternal. How do you put that together? Yeah, we see that's exactly what God was doing. So God is not at all uh, haphazard about how this happened. It was his plan to go to Bethlehem, and, and he would be of the line of David because God had promised David, 2 Samuel 7, he had promised David that the kingship would always be in his line. And Jesus, indeed, would be born of the line of David. Now you say that's Joseph, but if you look at the genealogies of both Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, it seems, though it's a little bit confusing at first, it seems that we have the genealogies of Joseph and Mary, both coming from David in different ways and converging in Christ. And so God was putting it all together. Notice that there's nothing in Luke 2 that says that an angel told Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. An angel told Mary certain things. An angel told Joseph certain things. But this one, they just went because of the decree of the emperor. Joseph was just a law-abiding citizen. That's what got him humanly to Bethlehem. It's not that he necessarily knew, though he could have known, of the, uh, of the prophecy of Micah. He was a law-abiding, unlike some of the zealots of the day who were uh, in rebellion against Roman taxation. Joseph and Mary just humbled themselves and went to, went to Bethlehem to register to pay taxes. Do we trust God's plan when something annoying, something costly and something even perhaps political is complicating our lives. Many times we don't know what God is doing. But do we humbly believe that God is sovereign and good and doing exactly what's according to his plan? So from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea, they go. And uh, let's take a look at that. So Nazareth is in the north in the region called Galilee, and they go down to Bethlehem of Judea. Now, you, you would notice that it says in verse 4 that Joseph went up from Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem. That to us looks like south, so we always say down. But in those days, uh, for the Jews, anybody heading towards Jerusalem was going up. They, they, didn't, they didn't just like go... Um, out. They didn't go east, they didn't go west, they, they went up if it's towards Jerusalem. How long does it take to go there? If it's 80, 90 miles, we don't know the exact route they took, but remember how they kind of avoided the Samaritans because they didn't like the Samaritans who had historically been Assyrians who uh, were intermarried with the Jews. Uh, if you, the distance is about like walking from here to Green Bay, so if you do a Google map thing, it takes 28 hours to uh, walk to Green Bay, they say. So how many would Mary walk if she's eight months pregnant? 
six hours a day, eight hours a day? Um, or did they have a donkey? Because the Christmas card companies clearly believe that she did. How cold was it? Uh, next week we can talk a little bit about that, but um, December is likely, and if so, the average temperatures in Bethlehem are kind of lows of 40, 47 to 60, it looks like, so it's, it's walkable. It's, it's maybe a little on the chilly side. Do you see anything in the passage about them complaining? You know, basically, we're talking today about how difficult it was. Luke just gave us the facts, and there's no evidence as you look at the life and the experiences of Mary and Joseph that they ever complained. They just complied. And so we have to just think about what it was like. Joseph was a carpenter. We know that actually from Scripture because Jesus was called the carpenter's son. And, and uh, so I'm pretty sure he didn't have unemployment when he went down to Bethlehem. And so there was lost income and there was greater expense. Is it possible that God chose Joseph and Mary largely because of their character? Simple, humble obedience. Uh, taking the mandatory trip, doing what needs to be done, humbling themselves. In fact, another humbling part of it was what we find there in verse uh, 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Those were not just humbling, but humiliating circumstances that could not be explained. In Matthew 1, we see that Joseph is the one who was about to divorce Mary. And it was called divorce even though it was uh, the betrothal time because the paperwork was signed. That culturally was called marriage already. Uh, but then the angel appeared in the dream and said, No, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph believed the angel. And Matthew says he married her. But officially, the marriage was not yet consummated uh, at the time of this trip. It was not yet official official uh, when they would come together. So at this point, he's just engaged, betrothed, and making a trip. To be uh, pregnant but unmarried was scandalous in ancient Israel. And you couldn't, if you're Mary and Job, you couldn't go around and, and try to explain, actually, we were not immoral because the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Who's going to believe that? The stigma followed Jesus into his grown-up years. John eight forty one. the Jews accuse grown-up Jesus saying, we were not born of immorality, insinuating that the reputation he carried throughout his years was that that's how they viewed Joseph and Mary. So they, they were living here with unwarranted, undeserving shame in their community. Then in the midst of all of that, Caesar Augustus says, you have to go to Bethlehem. Maybe it's almost a welcome relief to get out of the small town gossip of Nazareth. But again, no, no indication of complaint. And yet, we assume in their hearts they're saying, why, Lord? Why, why these circumstances? Why this timing? The questions that we ask when 
one stress upon another piles and there's kind of these layers of stress that we just live with. God had thoroughly interrupted the, the wedding plans of young Joseph the carpenter and his, the young girl of his dreams and now they find themselves on a dusty, muddy road walking to Bethlehem to fill out some government form. Does God have the right to add stress upon stress in our lives? Especially in this case where they could not even take the blame for it themselves. It's not like, well, I know, it's my fault, I deserve this. This is mandatory stress. This is faultless stress. Is, is God still being good to Mary and Joseph? And by faith we answer yes. And in fact, by faith, Mary said, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And we do. Sometimes we don't feel blessed, just stressed. But could stressing be the path to God's blessing? You notice, hopefully in Scripture, that every miracle comes out of crisis. It is, it is how we learn to trust God, and so we must choose to accept God's sovereign right to interrupt and complicate our lives. We don't choose our stress, but we do choose our attitude. Do we have a humble attitude of acceptance, like Paul said in that opening passage, have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So they arrive in Bethlehem. No one is there celebrating their great commitment, their humble spirit. Uh, we're doing that today, but not then. We're just, they're just there with other pilgrims uh, responding to the decree taking begrudged trips from other locations around Israel, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, you can't stop a baby from coming, so it seems that they arrived in Bethlehem just barely in time for the birth. Imagine the anxiety of that. So often God's timing doesn't give us any cushion, does it? Um, you maybe experienced that when God has provided maybe financially for you and you've been concerned and concerned and the tension grows and, and then somehow it, it, it's worked out and it's like, why didn't God give us a little more cushion instead of making us wait and yet is that actually the plan that God is late in our view delaying in our view but he's actually accomplishing exactly what he wants to in exactly the time so he can accomplish that which is is best the, the patience the endurance the, the the trust muscle she gave birth to her firstborn. Do you notice the pronoun her, not there? It's not Joseph's baby. Luke, the doctor, is both biologically and theologically correct. This is Mary's biological son. 
but a truly virgin birth, born of a woman. This was God's son, miraculously conceived and birthed. Wrapped in cloths, or you may have the uh, term swaddling clothes. Babies are still wrapped sometimes that way, right? Tightly for warmth, uh, security. Manger, laid in a manger. A manger is a, a trough. Most of us understand that, a trough. I picture a trough in a barn is kind of a longer uh, thing to, to put feed in for, for cattle or other livestock. But the term can simply mean a feeding receptacle, something you'd put grain in. It could be a wooden box even in that day. They could build a box. Uh, I read that sometimes they would even have a, a stone that's hewn out hollow to pour some grain in to, to feed animals. If it's for grain, it's not exactly the, the traditional Christmas pageant little scissor thing, you know, with sits there with straw in it, because I don't know how that would hold any grain. But it would hold straw if... if uh, Indeed, I wouldn't doubt that there would have been straw in the box for baby Jesus. But all the circumstances are difficult. The manger tells us they were staying where animals stay. The lack of an inn or a room means there wasn't room where people usually stay. So whether it was a barn or outdoor corral or a cave different people have guessed but it was an animal place because there was no room in the inn or you may have the word room and we always picture in our christmas pageants you know the sad innkeeper with the fake beard you know shaking his head or, or whatever the, the innkeeper actually never occurs in the story but uh, could be because there was no inn involved because the term inn is just the term room used for guest room or like spare room. It's the same term in the Greek language that, that Jesus used when he told the disciples to go prepare the room for the Lord's Supper. It's an extra room. That was an upper room. People had extra room. And that's normally where people stayed. Where, so don't, don't picture the motel with the, with the desk clerk necessarily. Regardless, Joseph and Mary couldn't secure a place. They had just arrived. And their labor and delivery takes place. I'm sure you uh, moms are saying, are picturing poor Mary. I guess I'm just thinking poor Joseph because the, uh, the six labors and deliveries that I attended, I already felt helpless. What if there was no help? What if there was no medical attention? Regardless, Jesus was born in a barn or some ancient equivalent. Humbling, huh? Did you, ever, did you ever have to stay in some subpar accommodations that were beneath you? One time, we were, a few years ago, we were uh, traveling to a family reunion and so just got a motel along the way. It was subpar. One of these, you know, traveling, we'll take this motel with a number on it. And uh, here we are still complaining. He doesn't say how lonely they were when they arrived, but clearly if they didn't have a place to stay, no one welcomed them. If it had been near open door, many of you would have brought them a meal. Doesn't seem anyone did. 
Mary didn't have her mother. Didn't have even dear cousin Elizabeth. Instead, God sent some rough, smelly men to visit. Yay. Joseph and Mary humbled themselves every step of the way. Epitomizing, I think, Paul's description of what the incarnation was all about. Have this same mindset as Christ Jesus. Joseph and Mary epitomized what their son, her son Jesus, would model. Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Let's shift our attention from the humility of Joseph and Mary to the humility of Jesus. Being in very nature God. Being God. He didn't stop being God. The nature is his essence. It's not like he's similar to God. He is God. His deity was never altered. He always existed. He created everything that exists. Nothing came into being that he didn't cause to be. John chapter 1. We recently studied in Revelation, and we know that Jesus is enthroned, and the angels of heaven are surrounding him and worshiping him. And Jesus did not consider this equality with God something to be used for his own benefit. These, the perks of deity. He actually laid them aside. He made himself nothing, or some of you have the expression, he emptied himself. It's this divest, divesting yourself, voluntarily limiting access to infinite characteristics, attributes that he had, so that his omniscience was veiled and limited, no longer knew everything like God would know everything. He, he experienced hunger and thirst and being tired, things that God never experiences, but he chose to limit himself to experience those things. Taking the very nature of, the serv of a servant being made in human likeness, referring to his birth, coming forth like every other baby who would cry, who would eat, who would wet, who would sleep, and do it all over again. Who would learn the Hebrew alphabet. And then think of this. He had to learn about things that he himself created. We only have little snippets of his childhood, Luke, Luke chapter 2 later on, of his experience at age 12. But other than that, we have nothing of those childhood years of the humiliation of Jesus going through the babbling stages or, or whatever that would speak of his humiliation that so boggles our mind. But then we go to the top of this passage and say, that's supposed to be our attitude. That's supposed to be our attitude. This is how we are supposed to relate as we think about ourselves with one another. This morning I want us to think about for humility in two senses. First of all, 
If you're a believer in Christ, what's this saying to us? How do we have the attitude of Christ? So kind of believer to believer. Let's talk about humbling ourselves. I've made a little list here of just some suggested sparks for our thinking. There's eight of them here. I will humble myself. If, if, if we're taking this seriously, if, 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 if the Christmas story and the incarnation as described in Philippians 2 is really about us humbling ourselves, then, then what does that look like? I will humble myself and serve. Does a certain name pop into your mind? Jesus came to serve us all. Who does God want you to serve in humility? I will humble myself and accept this annoyance. Mary and Joseph listed a lot about that long. How's yours? I will humble myself and not think that I'm better than. Joseph and Mary were the commonest. And yet, we see how important they were. And Jesus Christ, well, he's the exalted, infinite, glorified God. Humbled himself. I will not think I'm better than. I will humble myself and will wait for God's timing in. Getting anxious. Where does God want you to wait? I will humble myself and not seek credit for. Joseph and Mary, we, we celebrate them now 2,000 years later, but they weren't seeing themselves as special. I will humble myself and limit my, Jesus limited his deity. What perk do you need to turn down? I will humble myself and not insist on the, our rights, what, what do you need to let go of? So believer to believer, we see there's so much room for us to learn humility, and God ex so values humility. Sorry, and one more, sacrifice. Because that was ultimately what Christ did. He sacrificed his life, even to the place of death on the cross. And that leads us to then ask this question. Maybe you're not a believer in Christ. You're not quite even sure what the phrase means. Maybe you've never fully understood what it means that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, death on the cross. What was accomplished in the death on the cross? What was, what was that about? Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. There is, there is no way to picture the abject humiliation, the excruciating pain of the cross. All, peop all people had to know when Paul wrote this was even death on the cross. And, and for them, the picture was vivid. What was happening on the cross, though, was more than just human humiliation and pain. What was happening 
was he was accomplishing our salvation. He died to bear the penalty for our sin. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a, that's a, that's a familiar term, Christ died for us, but read it, read it slowly. Christ died for us, meaning in our place. We should have died. He died instead of us. He was bearing the penalty for our sins because God so loved us and did not want to punish us for our sins. First Peter, he himself bore our sins on the tree. So what was happening in the cross, friends, is that your sin was punished. God the Father didn't want to punish you. So he punished himself, his son, the eternal son. That's why he came in the flesh, incarnation. That's why he came and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. If he did that for you, how can you respond so that you will have assurance of eternal life? What does he ask us to do? There's a simple step, but we must make a decision. We must make a choice. We must respond to what Christ did for us. And it's called believing in or putting our faith in Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's the whole picture of the incarnation, coming as a baby, going to the cross, bearing the punishment of our sin. Now we have to respond that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So have you done that? A few verses later, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. A few chapters later, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. What's the key to eternal life? How do you have eternal life? How do you know? Do you believe in Christ? So what does it mean to believe in Christ? It's not just believing that he died on the cross. It is putting your faith in Christ. So what are you trusting in for eternal life? And when I ask that question, I often get this long list of answers. Well, I try to be a good person. I, I do all this, and I, I've been baptized, and I'm a member of such and such a church, maybe this church. None of those things give us eternal life. God is not tallying if we're naughty and nice. We've confused God with Santa Claus. Because the only way we have eternal life, since our sin eternally separated us from God, no matter how much sin we have, we are separated from God, the only thing we can do is put our faith in Christ. That is the step of humility God is calling you to make. If, if, if this doesn't strike you as complete and total humility, you don't get it. Because it means you can do nothing to earn salvation. There's nothing on your side of the ledger that you contribute to have eternal life. If you don't understand that, you don't have eternal life. Because we are all the same at the foot of the cross, in utter need. And so it is complete spiritual humility required for us to have eternal life. To believe in Christ, not believe in me. Not believe in yourself. Believing in ourselves does nothing. Believing in Christ 
Trusting in him does everything. So if, 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 if you understand that Christ paid for all your sin and your faith must be in Christ alone, I invite you this morning. Maybe you've been watching uh, for a number of weeks, uh, following God put an interest, maybe at Christmas time, that you would, would, would be a part of a church or watch church or come to church. God put something in your heart and, and, uh, and now you, do you realize you have a choice? He's, he's shown you how you can have eternal life. I would invite you to make a personal decision to trust in Christ. This is what you would be saying. You'd be saying to God, I realize I am a sinner and deserve eternal judgment. We've all sinned. We all deserve eternal judgment because God is completely holy. We can have zero sin when we go to heaven on our record. And we will never achieve that on earth, and we can never erase the sins we've already sinned. So I realize that I deserve eternal judgment. And then you'd be saying this, I am placing my faith in Jesus who paid for my sins. Complete humility, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And if you... If you are making those statements in your heart to God right now, you just then say thank you for dying in my place and saving me and forgiving me. So I invite you to do that. If you've made that decision in your own heart, please talk to one of us here. We'd love to help you to grow in your faith and uh, make sure you, you understand any questions you might have yet unanswered. God's great value is that we would humble ourselves. But what God promises is that when we humble ourselves, he exalts. Because that's exactly what he did for Jesus Christ, who became, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Let me finish the passage in Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Christmas is all about is that we are exalting the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we just uh, come before you. We want to be those who worship you. Every knee will bow someday. And we who understand who you are and what you've done, we want to begin with this humility of heart of coming before you, humbly acknowledging that you alone could save us. You alone are worthy of praise. And so we humble ourselves like you humbled yourself. We humble ourselves before you because you are the eternal God and our Savior who came and redeemed us from our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.